Hello, my name is Dylan, and this is the Heroes of Reality podcast, a place where I interview heroes of reality, of life, science, technology, and more, and I share the stories, lessons, journeys, inspiring you to be the hero of your reality. And on this podcast, I interview Rian Doris. He is the chief growth officer for the Flow Collective, and we talk about flow, what is it, how does it relate to the game of life? What are the different types of flow states? What are the different types of peak states? How does the montage in movies relate to flow states? What really engages people? What is the definition of flow? What is stir? And how does stir relate to flow? And if we're on this hero's journey, what? how does flow relate to the hero's journey in, in micro games versus the macro game? And then how do you switch from being the player in life to being the dungeon master in life? So without any further ado, I'd like to interview and say hello to my friend, Rian Doris. Hey, Rian, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me, bro. It's yeah. a, pl- a pleasure to be here and a nice opportunity to catch up as well. Absolutely, man. Yeah, it's it, it's great to connect, especially in this era where you, you don't get to see everyone's faces so often. So it's nice I to... I know. <laughs> it's wild, man. Yeah, yeah. How are things on your side of the woods? Good. I'm up in uh, in Palo Alto in the Bay Area um, at the moment. We uh, I'm normally based in Venice Beach, but we moved up here until things blow over essentially. So I've got a, got a really great setup up here. Thankfully, I'm I'm super lucky, and I've just been working remote, which was what we do normally anyway. So all's been great. Um, although I'm feeling for people who are in a less fortunate situation for sure. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of things with this whole place. We were kind of, kind of like a bird in the nest. We kind of got kicked out early, saying it's time to fly. You got to figure out how to get right. virtual quick, right? It's uh... a good, great analogy. I love that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. We were we were super fortunate just to be set up to run virtual. Uh, you know, I don't know anything else. So, yeah. so you have that's a, a, a huge advantage. A zero to dangerous meeting after this, you said. Yeah. 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 So, do you want to so, talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I, I can talk a little bit about the Flow Research Collective in general and Zero to Dangerous and what Flow is and what our mission is, if that's helpful. No? Sure. Yeah. So the Flow Research Collective is both a research and training organization. And we're focused on the training side on working with entrepreneurs and business leaders who are struggling with stress, burnout, overwhelm, self-sabotage, distraction, lack of clarity, all the good stuff, helping them increase their ability to access flow state with consistency. And then on the research side, we are partnered with Stanford, with UCLA, with USC, and a number of different academic institutions focused on researching the neuroscience of flow, figuring out what's actually going on in the brain and the body when people are in a flow state. And we're also building a team of peak performance coaches. Our goal is to build the world's most highly credentialed team of coaches. So all of our, our coaches are PhD level psychologists or neuroscientists who are also experts in flow. And the mission is to make flow state, which I'll define and talk a little bit more about in a moment, as mainstream and well-known and baked into the fabric of society and of the workplace as mindfulness currently is. Yeah. That's our long-term plan and goal. That's that's beautiful. It, flow is interesting because it's it's kind of like creativity in the sense that it is very very real, but also highly intangible. So, 
how do you really <laughs> quantify, measure things like saying, oh, I'm being creative? Like, how does that work? Totally. That, so one of the biggest things people say when they come across Stephen's work, and Stephen's mm-hmm. my partner at the Flow Research Collective, he's a New York Times bestselling author, and he's written lots of books on Flow, like Rise of Superman that people may know of. But one of the biggest things people say when they come across his work is that he named something that they've felt subjectively and he put an objective scientific framework around this thing that they felt but have never been able to name or label or pinpoint or define and so there's a lot of benefit with literally just naming it and knowing that that name is psychologically and scientifically validated but more so one of the ways to measure flow is through psychometric assessments, which is not crazy accurate and not fully optimal. That literally involves giving people academically validated psychometric surveys that that essentially ask a number of different questions and that the user rates. And then based on that, we can get a measure of flow. So that's one route, or that's one way of doing it. Um, and then another measure, another way to do if that we're attempting to work towards is physiological data, which is much more robust, much more tangible. So when we say decode the neurophysiology of flow state and talk about that as our mission, what we mean is essentially understand what's actually going on in the brain and in the body when individuals are in flow. And then once you can determine that with consistency, you can then track that data and then allow for much more robust binary measurements of flow, meaning, okay, you know, such and such brainwave state plus such and such heart rate variability signature plus such and such micro expression or galvanic skin response equal equals a flow state. Mm. So that's our that's our long term goal is to be able to measure it with that level of rigor. Interesting. Has there ever been a thing where, because, you know, part of the thing with you have energy in your body, right? Through the energy, you have a perception of a filter. The filter is a story you tell yourself about that energy. And that energy ultimately is um, I'm feeling this energy like I'm going to go on stage, right? And so that could be that energy you could take as a bad energy. And it's because my own perception of that of that energy that, versus other people that get on stage, they get this energy and they're like, oh, this is, this is the juice I need to come alive, right? Same energy, different different story, different perceptions, different filters, different responses. Has anybody ever had a, a, a negative response to being in flow? Has there anybody ever been like, this is something that I don't like the feeling of flow? Yeah, it's a, it's a great, great question. It's a meaty topic as well. So there's two, two things I'll mention on that. So one is that what we, we call that what you're describing, we, we talk about that as a, a cognitive frame. Mm. So there oftentimes is some underlying physiological stimulus. Let's say what one example is, you know, the feeling of pain when exercising and with the cognitive frame or the perception of that stimulus of pain falling under exercising Mm -hmm. that can feel very pleasurable and and feel like a positive thing whereas if you had the same pain in your legs as when you're doing heavy squats while lying in bed without again the cognitive frame or perception of exercising you would probably be calling you know 911 and trying to put yourself into a hospital essentially to figure out what the hell is wrong and alongside that feeling extremely stressed yet the actual objective stimulus that pain 
is no different. What's different is the contextual or cognitive frame around it. So that's one helpful way to think about that. And then what I would say with respect to flow is that it is always by definition inherently a positive state mm-hmm. in terms of how it feels, at least in the moment. Now, that's not to say that you can only get into flow doing things that are good for you. That's totally not the case. People can get into flow you know, on their 14th hour of playing Fortnite, they might be deep in a flow state, flow in a flow state. You could be, you could be in flow while robbing a bank. You could in flow while doing all sorts of things that are unethical, that are not aligned with your long-term goals, that are not good for you. So the way I like to think about it, or one term that I like to use is the idea of an accurate flow state, which is essentially just the idea of getting into flow, doing something that is actually aligned with your long-term goals and that's actually going to be beneficial to you. But mm. to actually answer your question, flow always feels good by oh. definition, at least in the moment. Well, that was what I was curious about. What it made me think about was the whole, you get energy and then the perception of that energy. Some people will cave in, break down. Other people that have resilience that they know what this means to them, like a Navy SEAL person will get super calm and super focused and they'll, they can channel that and funnel that down a, down a, down a, a ravine because they've, they've created those, those neural pathways so that that flow has a place to go. Versus some people get overwhelmed with it and they just overall fight, flight, freeze, break down. Exactly, exactly. And a way that I would actually think about that or reframe that is as activation or nervous system activation, Mm -hmm. which is not necessarily the same as flow, but oftentimes is a precursor to flow. So if you feel, for example, hypervigilant and you, you feel like your sympathetic nervous system has been activated and you, you feel you know stressed, anxious, kind of on edge, up for it right before doing a 100-meter sprint and it feels great and then boom, you know, the, the gun fires or whatever and you lock in and you crush it and you, you know, we're in a deep flow state during that period. That might be one example of high arousal. Mm. Um, another example of high arousal that's not pleasant at all is when someone is having to give a speech to six people at a family dinner and they have that same feeling and it's crippling and they hate it and it makes them dread family dinners. But in both of those instances, it's arousal. And what can, off- what can happen if, if that arousal is leveraged is the flow can come as a result of that arousal versus another state like anxiety or, you know, uh, an excessive stress response that breaks down performance. So it's a primer. It's not necessarily that energy isn't actually the flow part. It is the energy that can slip you into the slipstream of flow. It's not actually the, the flow itself. And so that energy itself depends on, do you use that energy to go down the tracks into the roller coaster ride or do you go off the tracks and into the ravine because you, you don't know how to actually take it and funnel it into a position that's, that's useful. What? Yeah, I think that's one great way to think about it, yeah. Question for you on this. And one thing that I'm really interested in and is around as you know the hero's journey is understanding you know how does flow relate to somebody's hero's journey as, as i'm sure you're familiar with the the narrative arch and all that stuff i mean how do how do you think it applies in the sense of of personal transformation and growth and people that are um, going through these types of universal experiences yeah it's a great question i, lo- I love that question one way there's a number of ways as well that i would think about this one way is to think of flow as an accelerant, mm-hmm. or as, as a form of turbo fuel, 
along a longer journey. So let's say someone's hero hero's journey involves building a business and writing an amazing book, lessons they learned building that business, for example. If that individual has bursts of flow on a daily basis mm. while building their business, doing mm. various activities and while writing their book, it should accelerate the, the, the speed of them being able to get to that end result of the successful business and the amazing book, along with hopefully improving the actual quality of the output as well. So that's one way to think about it is just from an output perspective. Yeah. Um, another uh, another thing that, that's, that's, that's important on it is that a lot of the original research on flow done by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who's a Hungarian psychologist, he talks about and has researched the fact that flow is very, very highly correlated with meaning in life and a sense of meaning. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm curious as to how you think about the hero's journey relative to meaningfulness or one sense of meaning in life. But it's my assumption, at least, that there's some kind of intersection there. That, you know, going on a hero's journey is a very meaningful process. And then being in flow and getting into flow increases the degree to which one feels like their life is meaningful as well. So there could be synergy there. Mm -hmm. And then the final thing I just mentioned is that peak states in general, and it's important to note that flow is just one of a number of different peak states. So there are awe states, there are trance states, there are meditative states, psychedelic states, there are flow states, there are a number of different states of mind that always have some kind of a neurophysiological signature that sits underneath them that result in heightened perception, mm. you know, increased or heightened mood, increased access to information, improved performance, and getting into peak states can result in really, really effective ways to enhance creativity, to improve one's ability to reflect on their life, to improve long-term decision-making, to get what we call the watchtower effect or the high perch experience. The watchtower effect is this idea of when you get into a peak state, you can kind of view your life, your situation, your relationships, your decisions from above. Yeah. Or at least it feels like it's from above. And I think that alone can facilitate one actually making sure they're on a hero's journey That's in the super. first place. That's There's a lot of things I want to dive into <laughs> on this now that you said that. Um, so just a couple of things that are coming across for me on this one is this. is um, One, you're talking about this. You're talking about finite and infinite games, right? And you're talking about these little micro, totally. these micro flow sessions. And so, you, you, you know, you have you know, the, the, the grand journey, right? And inside this journey, there's all these side quests or these, or these mini games that you go on yeah. and that, that all level you up in the direction of where you're going. So that the side quest yeah. isn't necessarily a direct path, um, but it's moving you towards the overall end goal. Um, one of the things I find interesting about flow is also the same thing as that. I think flow is almost like our literal definition of the montage. So like in every in every good movie, there's the there's the montage where um, the hero goes off and, and they, they fight their first threshold guardian. The first threshold guardian kicks the crap out of them. Right. Uh, let's just say mm. learning to surf. Right. And they're they get their butt kicked. <laughs> 
they go away. They find a mentor. They give them tools, better abilities, and then they go through this, and they and then they go on and say a six month journey, a twelve month journey of getting their ass kicked again and again and again. And they're constantly in it. They're constantly doing battle. They're constantly going back at it, and they're in it. But as they're going through these battles, it is in in the movie terms, they cut together a montage. Well, that montage yeah. is essentially what flow is. It's your life's perception of that. And I've always been like, why do people like montages? And 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 it wasn't until you said something that actually triggered a thought in my head. Um, and that's super interesting. I've actually never thought about it like that before. But, but when you're talking about that, what it made me think about was, you know, I thought people liked montages because everybody likes progress. Everybody loves it, but everybody hates the effort of growth, right? Everybody hates to put in the exertion of will. And so if you look at that exertion of will being the fact that humans are inherently lazy, but humans inherently like to grow and transform, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven, nobody wants to die type of thing. And so if you look at that, and if you look at the flow versus the montage, you realize that the, the montage is the video, the production Hollywood version of flow. And if you're stepping into this, it's same, it seems like these, these, these flow states are these little micro montages in terms of the, the macro hero's journey. And so if you can find these little mini flow sessions that you go on, and so you show up, and for example, you're going to school, and you're your, your drill sergeant puts you through one competition and then you jump from that thing to the next thing to the next thing. You do that so much that you're constantly engaged that you do go through that stir, that timelessness, selflessness, all that other type of stuff. It, that's what makes me think about how it relates to the hero's journey and how it relates to the montage value of, of the kind of the, the narrative version of it. I love that. I've never thought about why montages in movies or media are appealing. But there is something so appealing about that that chunk of a movie where it goes to montage mode and things speed up, a, tra- a playlist or a track comes on. And I think it is because there is some fundamental element about the fact that, you know, the, the journey itself mm. is appealing to people. It's not just about the end result, obviously, and a montage is like a little snapshot of the actual journey to the end result within whatever specific scenario it is and that's one place that flow is super powerful as well is that flow is the only state really within which we are exerting and putting forth effort and taking action and usually so long as we're doing an activity that is productive usually producing something very very effectively in an optimal state Mm -hmm. while simultaneously feeling our best and finding that state incredibly pleasurable. And so it is a state of effortless effort. Mm-hmm. Hence, hence the term flow. And hence why you know we all want to transform and grow, but we all hate putting in the effort. So if you hit a flow state, I get to grow without the effort. So it's, it's like a cognitive shortcut. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then that said, though, what we always say is that effortless effort takes effort so (laughs) so it's hard to get in the flow yeah and you cannot and you cannot build a life or a a work schedule or a system or a set of habits that rely on flow and rely on effortlessness it's the exact opposite of that you got to be willing to grind if flow doesn't show up but ideally you want to be optimizing yourself for flow but again usually getting into flow is going to take some effort on the front end and i could talk a little bit about the flow cycle if you'd like because it actually it maps nicely with this please continue that i have some thoughts on that but i want you to get that out and we're going to go back and forth on this for sure 
Sure. So, so the flow cycle was written about in a book called The Breakout Principle by a, a Harvard cardio- cardiologist called Herb Benson. And Stephen and Jamie from the Flow Genome Project, now the Flow Research Collective, at least myself and Stephen are now at the Flow Research Collective. They realized that this cycle that Herb was referencing mapped directly onto a flow state. And there's four elements to this cycle and four elements to the flow cycle in general and and flow states. The first stage of the flow cycle Uh is a struggle phase. Then you go into a release phase. Then there's the actual flow state itself. And then there's a recovery phase on the back end. But So it goes struggle, release, the actual flow state, the thing we're talking about, and then recovery. And the key point there is that struggle literally within the flow cycle is a necessary precursor to flow. So you get into flow on the back end of some form of struggle. And, and, that, and that means, you know, effort, full effort or grind or whatever you want to call it. And, that, and then again, that, that gets down to very specific things like feeling like you just can't write another word if you're trying to write your book or whatever it is. Interesting. So with the four phases, there was the struggle, release, recovery, and flow. Is that it? Are those four? Struggle, release, flow, recovery in that order. So, so it's a struggle phase. Then you release into the flow state. Then you have the flow state. And then a, there's a recovery phase in the back end. That's See, that's super interesting. And so yeah, I, I see the cycle. So one of the things that I always say is it's very difficult to be the both the dungeon master and the player in the game of life. Both of them take different perspectives. They, 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 they switch things out, right? So in order to take that perspective, right, the, the dungeon master has to set up the framework, has to set up the game, has to set up the architect. It says, okay, here's the mini game you're running through, right? But then you got to switch perspectives and then be that first person that actually has to run the gauntlet. Then you got to run the gauntlet. Then you got to switch back. And so some people that are able to have strong uh, discipline, um, creativity, that, that have all those, that, are, that is a d- dynamic human, can switch between perspective back and forth. And they're generally pretty good at narrating and measuring their own life's abilities. Other people don't really have that kind of skill set. And so what they do is I call this cognitively unloading of discipline and effort. And so they hire a coach and they have that coach be the dungeon master and then they're just the player. So if you're really good, you can do it by yourself and you can switch between those two perspectives. Otherwise, you're saying, look, I'm a really good player in this game of basketball. I need a coach to just tell me what to do and how to do it. And so it is a challenge to be able to, to do that because you, what you're looking at, those different those different systems, you either have someone managing the flow state or you got to be able to switch in and out of that effort. Mm. I, I love that. And and that's that that is kind of a, I think you would call it some sort of a meta, meta model because I can think of different examples of how that shows up, that idea of, being both the dungeon master and the player and mm-hmm. the fact that you've got to kind of oscillate in and out of those states of dungeon master and player and one way that it it lends to a more specific model is is working on the business and working mm-hmm. in the business a very simple example obviously of, of that of that model showing up yeah another one um is the idea of strategy and execution you know, the idea of, of, of the thinking and deciding and wondering and questioning of what you should do within your work week and then the actual doing, the executing of whatever it is that you've decided merits doing. And I think that that's a key skill is being able to oscillate in and out from dungeon master 
to player. And that's the, the, one of the major challenges is because anything that involves a state change involves massive effort to get from one state to another state. So uh, lazy to energetic or energetic to tired, like all those things take this, take, an, take, take a massive energy to go. I am in this, I am, I am basically gaining momentum in this one energetic state and the, and being able to shift to the other energetic state is a challenge. And there are, you know, hacks and abilities. Like if I wanted, one of the challenges I've had with this whole stupid COVID thing is that what I realized is that I'm a, I'm naturally an introvert that likes to be around extroverts. And so I have a tendency where I like to, um, I have my quiet group of people and I, and I realize that I'm pretty comfortable with the whole COVID thing going around talking to the four people that I really care about and then just having those types of conversations. I really like that. But one of the things I realize I struggle with is my hacks that I've done for my entrepreneurial career is I use um, the energy of the environment to propel me into a state change. So if I want to be yeah. productive, I'll go to a Starbucks and I'll be around the energy of productivity and I'll, I won't talk to anybody, but I'll do that. If I want to be physically productive um, with my body, I'll go to a gym and I'll be around the energy of that. And one of the things that I've had a challenge with this whole COVID thing situation is I don't have any places to use the social environment to propel me forward in that energetic state. Like I wouldn't go like, like it's very difficult for me to work out by my house, by my house in my house without anybody around to, to propel me in that energetic state. Right. Um, and so I've noticed that that is one of the challenges with me is like with my cognitive hacks is going to those energetic states that represent to me what that means to bring myself into that environment and let that energy change me versus me just on a dime closing my eye and going, okay, I am now going to be, you know, productive on the computer or I'm now going to start doing a hundred reps. You know, it just, it's, it's a, it seems like it's more, more energy to, to do it versus getting, a, you know, a drop in the ocean being carried along the current versus having to have that drop change from one state to another state all by itself. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's very helpful for people to have self-awareness around how they individually are with respect to this. Mm -hmm. And a simple example, the we can call the, the, the coffee shop test, is whether or not when in an environment where there's lots of stimulus, people talking, people ordering, conversations being had, people walking in and out, that, that information for some people can cause a hone in of focus. So it's almost like they push against the external stimuli in the environment and it allows them to lean in and, and, and go into a state of, of focus. Whereas other people, the exact opposite happens. And that information, that stimuli in the environment is almost like reaching into their awareness and plucking bits of their attention and yanking it in different directions and they can't stop thinking about the fact that the woman at the counter ordered a frappuccino or whatever it is yeah. so no knowing and it sounds like you obviously thrive with external stimuli around you that allows you to focus to energize yourself so yeah no knowing uh, whether that's the case can be is helpful i feel like there's a parallel with that with what you mentioned earlier when you're talking about the whole, um, when I talk about, okay, you get this energy and what do you do with this energy? And you're like, well, that's just a precursor to the energy of going into flow. You get all this energy um, to go into a, a state change of some kind. Um, I'm going to go on stage. And that's just the internal framework of whatever the, the thing might be. And so I'm, I'm just, what I'm doing is I'm just siphoning the energy of the of the ambiance and the ambience of the environment and using that energy to propel me into flow. So like something to lean against. Right. Yeah. Um, and, but my, uh, but you're even saying off. that is again, that's that, that pre energy, you have this energy. What do you do with this energy? The energy of the environment, you can either say, I can't concentrate, I can't focus or you can go, okay, everyone's working. 
I'm going to use this. Let's all do this together. And you and I go down that road. So I feel like there's there's parallels with uh, that kind of just internal energy versus external energy. Yeah, and I think I mean I actually I'm not sure to be totally honest on the on the research on this. Um, to my knowledge, it is also there's a you know people have a predisposition. It's not just a choice. In other words, certain people thrive with stimuli in the external environment, mm-hmm. and that allows them to focus in better. Mm-hmm. Certain people are much more sensitive from a distraction standpoint, and they need noise canceling headphones on their own in an empty, quiet library to be able to yeah. focus. Um, so I think it yeah it depends. It depends, but also you're, you're looking at that. That's the Victor Franco, you know, between stimuli and response is your ability to choose and there lies all your power, right? And so, you know, part of the thing is we are unconsciously, uh, you know, with those environments, you know, are you conscious that you don't work well in those environments or are you unconscious that you work well in those environments? And what do you do with that energy? So, you know, if the first thing is first being aware, how do you respond? And then two, it, then you have a natural response like um, – somebody slaps you, you will have a natural response to that. And you could necessarily choose another path. Like, well, when someone slaps me, I would respond in kind um, and slap them back. (laughs) Or I would respond with kindness, which is what is not my natural response, but my ability to choose that, it will take energy for me to choose an alternative path. Um, And that is something that I had a friend of mine I had on uh, the podcast. And what she did is she actually overlaid that. And I think of it in terms of augmented reality with a superset of, of uh, of other ones. So she had a bad habit of say, always going left on this path. The left could be, could represent a responding poorly to a certain stimuli. But what she did is she literally overlaid that because she was a rock climber with a mental overlay of a rock climbing path that she's done a ton of times. And if she went to the right, it would be the, the lower, easier path, which would be the path that she didn't want to go down to or the challenging path that she liked to go on that she'd have to reach and struggle for. And whenever that negative stimuli happened, she would overlay that mental model of that choice of, oh, I'm in that rock climbing position where if I choose this less path, that would so easily to, you know, re- respond with a back slap. Um, you then choose the the other path. I'm actually I'm going to take the higher road mentally. So she overlaid it with, uh, with her her old patterns along with her actual a strong anchoring belief of something else where she would make a more effortful choice naturally and she used that more effortless choice naturally to have her reroute that neural pathway. Yeah, so that that kind of what you're referencing there, I think, is actually the essence of mindfulness, mm. which is essentially that there are, there are stimuli, like you're describing, it's getting slapped in the face. <laughs> it's obviously it's a form of stimulus. So is getting a text. So is getting a text that has terrible news in it. Yeah. So is stubbing your toe. You know, they're they're all just random examples yeah. of stimuli. And then we have various responses, as you're saying, to those stimuli. Might be anger, might be frustration, it might be anxiety, it might be to just go and smack that person back across the face instantly. (laughs) (laughs) And then what what mindfulness does is simply elongate the gap between Mm. that stimuli, whatever it is, and your response to it. And the longer that you can make the gap, the more room you actually have to be able to insert a choice in the middle so, and makes, so rather than 
go ahead. Sorry. No, yeah, that totally makes sense. It, you're basically, you're basically expanding that moment in time. So you're basically when you're coming to the top of the mountain, instead of you just automatically going over the hill and around the fence, you're going to the top of the mountain, and you have the choice to switch tracks, and you can kind exactly. of beautiful analogy yeah. yeah i love that love that analogy actually i'm definitely gonna borrow that one <laughs> please go ahead <laughs> that's all i do is I sit here and come up with analogies for what you're talking about <laughs> no, they're great they're great yeah an analogy i mean analogy in and of itself not to get too meta on it on the whole conversation yeah, but yeah. i've been finding analogy to be something that i've been thinking about more and more with respect to breaking down concepts and ideas it's just it's such a helpful tool for distilling ideas and, and grounding them and having people mm -hmm. actually get aha insights around ideas so i love that you're big on the analogies yeah. well, i use it a lot just uh, just part of this kind of a reflection process of it's just been my natural um inclination is to do analogies but i realized that one of the reasons why i do that is is for mental model alignment and so we have a tendency to try to explain you know, I'm talking to you and you're saying, oh, yeah, flow states like this. And I'm like, oh, OK, well, and, and in my mind, that might mean something completely different. But if I go, oh, so you mean like the Rocky Man montage. Now we both have a shared common experience. And I realized that one of the common languages that we all share is primarily with the people in our small ecosystem um, are pop culture references. So if I go, mm. it was like Rocky Balling or Goonies Never Die or, you know, insert different types of things. We, we all have a shared emotional experience to that and to that mental pop culture reference. And so some of the communications I do is around, okay, what is, what is in my mind, how does that represent a, a, uh, an analogy that represents what you're talking about? And then if you're like, no, 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 it's actually not like a train cart at all. It's like, a, it's like a, a subway track or something else. Then it's just, it helps me create this mental alignment with you. And so that's why I do it. No, I love it. It's yeah, it's, it's super important. It, it's a way of well this is another <laughs> it's funny this is an analogy to describe the function of analogies perfect let's do it but it's a way of aligning the map with the territory you know because any mm. any model anything that we're talking about is some form of a map or overarching way of tr attempting to describe what you could call you know naked reality and, right. and analogy just allows us to get a better understanding of how whatever that map or model is actually is describing the territory that it's meant to be describing. You totally, what it made me think about is almost like an inception of mapping. Again, another analogy, but we're talking about, you have the, you have your naked reality, right? Then we have our cognitive models, right? Which what we think, yeah. well, we're in, uh, you know, Rian's house and it's got a thing and a thing and the trees and stuff. Oh, cool. So we have, we have naked reality, right? And then we have what our social structure reality is on top of what we both believe those things are. And then we have yeah. a shared um, either uh, analogy or principles, things that is basically a map to determine the social constructs or the virtual constructs that then determine the reality and what that means, right? So you're basically inception mapping down that path all the way to a real reality. Exactly. And that's where you get into things like, you know, um, perceptual blindness or, or, or sensory blindness, where essentially and a cognitive bias is an example of a perceptual blindness. It's an example of the, the human brain and the makeup and architecture of our cognition not mapping to objective reality very tightly 
or having ways in which it doesn't map to objective reality very tightly. So an example is simply availability bias, mm-hmm. which is you know the idea that we are just more likely to think that something has occurred or does occur more frequently if we can recall an instance of it occurring very recently. The movie Jaws. For example, what's that? <laughs> the movie Jaws. Right, right, right. So, so like, oh, oh, yeah. Sh- uh, sharks aren't very possible. Like sharks aren't very frequent. But if you just watch the movie Jaws, you get in the water, you're going to feel like a shark's around you, even though it's exactly. not. Again, cultural exactly. reference to communicate the thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Whereas you know, within objective reality, and if our cognition and the makeup of our cognition was flawless, watching the movie Jaws before going swimming would not make it would not make a difference to the degree to which you feel like you're going to be bitten by a shark. Yeah. You know that the stats have changed. Yeah, your yeah, perceptions yeah. change. And so you've got an inaccurate read on the actual instance, yeah. which is, again, that kind of perceptual blindness or perceptual yeah. glitchiness. But if you can you can use it, if you're aware of the hack, you can hack it to your own advantages. Um, any, one of the things being, you know, building out games and other things like that is, you know, it, it, you know things aren't bugs. They're just unutilized features. And so if you understand that there is uh, a situation that, oh, this reality doesn't really, it's not really, this reality doesn't really matter. It's all about my perception on this. So you go, okay, now I need to be able to reframe my cognitive bias by running through this, this process that will then realign this into a more productive pattern um it's it's understanding those hacks and then and then taking leverage uh your own cognitive leverage and sometimes coaches help you with that they go oh this is what this means so let me let me realign you with what what is possible um and 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 just to just to kind of bring it all back to what we were talking about in the first place with the dungeon master and the player in the game of life analogy Mm -hmm. the, the process of what you can just call externalization in general, which you can achieve through a peak state, which you can achieve through journaling, which you can achieve through coaching, but basically getting something out of your own mind and into some you know, other situation, whether that's, again, an engagement with a coach, whether it's you writing things out, getting feedback, going into a peak state so you can see your, your prior thoughts from a different perspective. But the process of externalization and ensuring that you are oscillating out of player and, and up to dungeon master allows you to reduce perceptual blindness. Mm. And a way of doing that, it's very simple, is what you just mentioned, which is understanding cognitive because then all of a sudden you've got awareness of them, which then allows you to get a higher perch view on them and not be susceptible to them, but actually choose. It, it's almost like you have... um. It's almost like you have a, in your mind, you have a mental model. You have a map that you use, but you just can't see. It's almost like you have a different sensing mechanism. For example, uh, your mental map is made out of Braille, and all I can do is feel it, right? And I can't articulate it. But the process of bringing it through the other senses into the physical reality means that you are basically taking that mental Braille map, and then you are going to bringing it through the other senses into the physical reality. And so you're almost mapping your map, which then allows you to take a look at it and then rewrite that map to then send back into the, the Braille part of your brain. Yeah, it's an interesting way to put it all like that. So, yeah, another, well, another interesting one on this is the fact that, you know, there's perceptual blindness and then there's also um, sensory blindness. Mm. So, for example, you know, dogs have 
sensory abilities that we do not have, that we are literally blind, to use the word blind, maybe is, is a little confusing there, but mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, sensory okay. blockages. You know, in other words, dogs can pick up on smells that we just simply cannot pick up on. Yeah. So there are also just sensory limitations yeah. to the information that we can consume that other animals obviously have massive limitations mm-hmm. But we have certain just, yeah, sensory blockages. It's like an operating system for the brain. Um, for example, if you if you look at like a dog's operating system versus a human's operating systems, they have different bells and whistles and certain features that support uh, different types of applications. So, for example, uh, the dog's operating systems got the ability to pick up high pitched noises, frequencies, things like that, but probably not color for vision. And so it's yeah, taken right. in this internal reality and goes, oh. I'm a dog, so I can do X, Y, and Z. But humans can do different things. So it's 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 just how does the operating system interpret the data to actually make it meaningful? You know, a dog can yes can do it one exactly. way, but a human is another. And presumably, I mean, that's one place, thanks to our prefrontal cortexes, that humans have very high capacity is the ability to take in information, whether it's sensory or cognitive, and then and then relay it, and then relay it into you know, fully formed thoughts and make meaning out of it. Yeah. Well, one of the questions I had about this, you're talking about peak states, right? So you said, is there, is there a finite amount of peak states that you're aware of? And, and if, if flow is the peak state for progress and, and overall uh, effortless effort, I mean, what do the other peak states represent? Yeah, it's a good, it's a great question. So as far as the number of peak states, mm-hmm. again, in certain respects, it depends on how granular you want to get uh-huh. with separating out peak states. Because you know, you could take you could take a peak state like flow, and actually and break that down into other sub states. Like for example, a, an Australian researcher, Christian Swan, has what he identified what he believes to be a peak state that would roughly fall under a flow state called clutch, which is actually sort of what we talked about earlier, which is this idea of it's that it's that feeling or sense you get as you're about to lean in to something. And he, he calls that clutch. And he, he describes that as its own state. So I think I mean there there is a certain there's only a certain amount of peak states that are identified and talked about within the literature. Mm-hmm. Um but Technically, you know, you you could nitpick all of the psychological elements and variants, all of the underlying neurobiological variants, and segment them out into hundreds or an infinite amount of of, of separate peak states. But I, I don't necessarily think that would be that useful or fruitful. And again, the main ones are are, are the ones we mentioned: you know, awe, flow, psychedelic states, meditative states, trance states. A deep, you know, experience of, of romantic love, for example, maybe a peak state. But one important thing just to mention that's very helpful when thinking about peak states is this idea of stir that Stephen and Jamie talk about in Stealing Fire. Mm-hmm. So that's the idea that all peak states have four characteristics to them. Um, and stir stands for those four characteristics. So that's selflessness, mm-hmm. this feeling of, you know, the inner critic that dialogue or that inner voice going offline timelessness which is again that feeling of you know hours going by and what feels like minutes when you're surfing a wave or get totally lost in writing effortlessness which is what we talked about earlier that sense of effortlessness and then richness or information richness which refers back to what we've been talking about around 
the watchtower effect, being able to externalize things, being able to get a high perch view on your life, information richness means that you're getting access to more information than you normally would, which is what's causing that watchtower effect and allowing you to see things from different perspectives. So all peak states have those four elements, selflessness, mm. timelessness, effortlessness, and richness. And anything that has all those four elements is, is a peak state. Got it. Yeah, I was just curious. Um, <laughs> if you could map that out, that would be fantastic. I would appreciate it. But <laughs> the, the, what I'm curious about is how does it relate to, the, to human meaning and purpose and drive? And these different states, it seems like if you were to map out core value sets, and let's just say, you know, people like growth, people love connection, people want significance, people want, you know, you, you, you look at these, these different types of human needs, and you were actually to cross map that out with actual flow states, right, whatever that might think. I feel like, you know, people like growth, uh, people like certainty, uncertainty. Uh, these, these are the different types of uh, human needs that people have. And if you look at the human needs and you cross-reference those with flow states, I'm wondering if there'd be a corollary between these, these peak states correlate with these human needs. And if you had a, a, a thing in the area of uh, a, a burnt-out uh, executive, maybe they understand that these types of peak states would actually – would actually correlate with their actual uh, ultimate human needs. So I want uh, human connection and this, that, or the other. So then I should go to a big rave and suck in a baby bottle and go play with my friends or whatever the thing might be, right? I'm just curious if there's a correlation there between human needs and flow states. That's interesting. I mean, it depends on, on, on how we're defining human needs or, or what, what sort of list of human needs we're using. Mm -hmm. But definitely, again, going back to the, the meaning in life mm -hmm. and the sense of, of meaningfulness, purpose, satisfaction that flow results in, I would say that's one correlation for sure, mm -hmm. is that, again, the original research on flow just found that the more time that individuals were in flow, and this is all sorts of different individuals from all sorts of different economic backgrounds and all sorts of different specific roles or functions from factory workers to you know, Navajo sheep farmers, the more they got into flow doing all of these disparate things, the more meaningful they felt life was. Mm -hmm. And I would definitely personally class meaningfulness or you know that sense that life has some kind of intrinsic meaning to it as a human need mm, meaningfulness yeah uh, what? Because I know we're getting close. Because I know you have to, to do some uh, uh, zero to dangerous uh, action here. Um, before that, though, uh, one question I want to ask about you because I, I wanted to dive into your own personal hero's journey, but we kind of got sidetracked on this whole flow conversation uh, going into it. But I'm really curious here. You you talked to me about you know what the mission of the Flow Collective is and its purpose and what you guys are trying to do. And and you know since I've known you and I've known you for a little bit here. Um, I, I knew you before the Flow Collective, and you had actually a life before that working with uh, uh, Dan Siegel on some things as well. It seems like you there, there's a there is a correlate that I don't have time to dive into on this podcast, but I would love to spend some more time getting into it. But just if I could ask one question around that is, you personally seem to be on a very interesting. Um, uh, uh, mission of personal discovery and growth and, and leveling up. Um, what's your What's your holy grail? What drives you, man? What's What's this all about for you specifically? Not your company, but you. 
at the moment, this might sound like a cop-out answer in certain <laughs> respects, but um, yeah, to, to give one simple answer, it's uh, I would just literally say fun. I, I find it all incredibly, incredibly fun and enjoyable in a moment-to-moment level. I, f- I find setting very, very long-term goals and accomplishing them, even if it results in a significant amount of struggle and persistence and grind and effort to be more fun than anything else, really. Mm-hmm. So so that's that's one big obvious driver is, is just fun. Um I mean, obviously, there's the other more cliched things like wanting to make an impact, wanting to, you know, realize my potential, make a dent on the world. But uh, but for now, I would I would leave it at uh, at fun. Okay. Finding the fun. It's funny. It's like people hate saying things that are trite, but the things that are trite are most right. often true, right? And the, exactly. and and the, totally. like I, I can see like your unwillingness to like like you're like you're like I don't <laughs> want to say the standard quote thing. Don't make me do it. But there's there's I'm I'm sure there's there's several deeper questions behind those things of like you know like you know finding the fun. How is how is planning long-term goals fun when it's the opposite of flow? How is it? How you know? How did you first come across this? As I have a lot of questions more beyond this that I want to go into, but I know we're running short on some time here, and I want to I want to be respectful and I and I, and, uh, I want to make sure you can get to the other one. So, um, yeah, I would love to set up a follow-up podcast where we have a little bit more time yeah. and we can we can go a bit deeper on some of these topics. Hundred percent, man. Let's do it and. Uh... Yeah, this this conversation flew by. It was fun, <laughs> and my uh, fair play doing this as well. And uh, you're you're an amazing example, I think, of of the hero's journey of someone who is phenomenal at uh, at, at accessing flow while making a positive impact in the world. So I've always admired that a ton in you as well. Uh, thank you, man. No, it's just we you know we're all on the journey. We're all just trying to have fun and and you know hit all those cliche buckets along the way. So yeah. I I really. You know, I, I really enjoyed with, you know, enjoyed hanging out with you, learning and growing with you on this on this whole adventure, and I, and I look forward to doing more of it, my friend. So, you know, um, last last question here before we got to go. Uh, if anybody wants to reach out, uh, connect with you, learn more about it, how do they get a hold of you? Sure, man. So, flowresearchcollective.com will be the first place to go, and. That we have tons of free content on there. Definitely recommend joining our newsletter. We put out great free material every week on, on peak performance and neuroscience back peak performance. So I would go flowresearchcollective.com. There's free training, free content, and then access to our newsletter for even more, you know, free, free goodies. Beautiful. Thank you, Rian, man, brother. I appreciate your time. Uh, this has been epic. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed this session. And uh, yeah, I look forward to another one with you, brother. Hell yeah, man. We'll chat right. soon. All right, take care. All right, sir. See you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback on how to improve the podcast, I would cherish that. Please give me an email or shout out at dylan at heroesofreality.com. That's D-Y-L-A-N at heroesofreality.com. Stay strong, young adventures. Until next time.